What a great day will, that will be, won't it? When we've, since we've responded to Jesus' knock on the door of our hearts, we're going to get a chance to sit down at table with him for all eternity. Amen. Thank you, for Christina. Andrew and Christian, it's great to have you with you. If you've not recognized the Rogers among us, one of our former staff members, Andrew and his family are back. It's great to have them visiting and worshiping with us today. You know, every once in a while you have these kind of unusual and maybe at times awkward moments, right? And um, I had one of those one time. We were at church gathering. Somebody walked up to me and they said, how come you don't like me? <laughs> and, and, you know, and me, I was kind of recoiled and I was thinking to myself, I like you. I mean, I, I, you know, you start playing the memory tapes real quick and like, you know, I, you've never done anything to annoy me or bug me or whatever. We, we may not be best friends, you know, we may not be top of my favorites list in my phone, but I have nothing but warm feelings, affectionate feelings for you, but somehow or another, this person had gotten the impression that I didn't like them. And sometimes perception can shape reality, right? I'll give you another example. I was pastoring down the South Shore, and we, we get a church plant, met in the school. We finally built the building, and so you know, I was working out of the office finally. I finally got off the back porch of my house, and we were actually in, in the office at the church building. And, you know, I was a good steward. So I'd get there in the morning, and, and I'd make a pot of coffee, and I drank the whole thing because you don't want to waste it, right? You know, so I'd drink the whole pot, and then you'd have lunch. And I was in my late 20s, so it, I'm sure it was a very carb-light kind of lunch that I would eat, right? So, but so it's early afternoon, like 1, 1.30, 2 o'clock, and you got this heavy lunch sitting on your stomach, and you're going through caffeine withdrawals, right? And you just get drowsy. Ever, ever happened to you guys? Well, this was also the very same time of the day that a, a young mother in our church who had a, a, a baby boy who had had a brain tumor and already been through multiple craniotomies, it was a time that she liked to call me because her son would be sleeping through those times. And so, you know, this went on for like a couple, three months. She'd call me once or twice a week, kind of like right in that time frame. And, and then one time she said to me, she said, am I boring you? And I'm like, What? And she said, well, you yawn a lot when I call you. You know, I'm thinking, you know, and so sometimes perception can create reality, right? And, and I think that's a very important for us to see as well because our spiritual perceptions can shape our spiritual reality. I'll give you an example. Jesus was one time just, he was just so bewildered with the disciples. They had been on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and, and he had fed a crowd of 5,000 people. I don't remember if it was four or 5,000 because there's different accounts. And, different, and, and he had fed them with just a few grams of carbohydrates and a few grams of protein, right? I mean, just had a couple of fish, a couple of loaves, and he, and he divided it and fed all these people. And they finally got everybody sent, and they're all on their way home, and everybody's okay. He and his disciples get in the boat, and they start going across, and, and the disciples start saying, we didn't bring any food. We're going to starve. We didn't bring any food. And Jesus is going, what is up with you guys? I mean, don't you know that I could just speak the word and we could have a filet mignon just jump right out of the sea and into the boat, you know? And he says, do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and don't see? Hear, sorry. I didn't want to screw up your perceptions right then. So <laughs> I think our text today suggest some things for us to really think about related to how our spiritual perceptions shape our spiritual reality that we live in 
and challenge us to get to a place where our spiritual perceptions encourage a healthy spiritual reality in our lives. And I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles with me over to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in the 16th chapter and the 17th chapter. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, and I really encourage you to follow along, we're going to be on page 239 today and moving into uh, over page 240 and 41. Many of you are going to recognize this some of, some of the story right away, because we're going de- to deal with three events. Finally, in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to get introduced to David, the man after God's own heart who's going to become the model king for the Israelites. And we're going to be introduced to him in chapter 16. God's ready to identify his replacement king for Saul, and David, David identifies. So we're going to have David's anointing. Then we're going to have David's initial role in the court of Saul. Saul was suffering from a troubled spirit because God had withdrawn his presence from him. And David was called in to do music therapy for him. And then in chapter 17, we're going to have the story that virtually everybody knows, the story of David and Goliath. It's the biggie. It's the best-known story out of the book of 1 Samuel, the story of David and Goliath, of the, of the, the, the underdog on steroids, if you will, taking on the unconquerable champion and winning. And I think out of each of these stories, we find some things that speak to us about being careful about our spiritual perceptions so that we can build a a healthy spiritual reality. I, I, I don't have time to read all of the text in chapter 16 and 17, which would be great. I'm going to read a lot of it because I don't think we really get at the heart and soul of what we can understand today without reading some of it. But, so I encourage you to follow along. I'll jump in a few places. I'll add a few comments in. And so in chapter 16, the story as it picks up, Saul's been rejected as king. You know, he screwed up earlier on because he, he, he was just looking around and, and, and all of his army was leaving him and, and et cetera. and was going down the, the, the challenge. Was good. So it seemed like him the expedient thing to do was to offer the sacrifice himself, and he had disobeyed God. And then the same thing happened in chapter 15. God gave him a great victory, but instead of following God's command about what to do with, with the spoils of war, if you will, he came up with something that seemed to be a better idea to himself. And God said, I, that Saul's not my man. And so in chapter 16, God begins the process of getting ready to replace Saul. So the Lord says to Samuel, Remember, Samuel was one that God had used to anoint Saul king in the first place. He says, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Don't you love God, God's saying to Samuel, get over it, all right? Yes, we, we made Saul king. Didn't work out. Get over it, all right? So get your horn. This would have been like a, a horn of an animal, like a, and, they, and they would have filled it with a specially prepared oil that they would use for anointing says, I'm going to send you to, the, to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've selected a king from his sons. There's only one problem. God didn't tell him which of Jesse's sons was going to be the next king. And he happened to have eight of them. <laughs> All right? Well, Samuel says, how am I going to go? He says, Saul's going to hear about it and he's going to kill me. In other words, the king was keeping an eye on the prophet. He knows the prophet sets out to an area that he doesn't usually go to, and he's carrying his special horn of oil. 
Saul's going to think, you know, I, I remember that picture. I remember when Samuel showed up in my neighborhood and used that same horn to anoint me as king. And so he's going to, he, Samuel's afraid he's going to take me, he's going to take him out, and he's going to take out the one that he anoints. So God says, well, let's use some camouflage. So he says, take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And this would not have been uncommon. Priests and Samuel is serving as the high priest. Priests often went out into rural areas to offer sacrifices. Sometimes there was a, a murder or something that had occurred that didn't get solved, and the leaders of the villages would call for the priest to come to offer a sacrifice of atonement, even though they couldn't, because a life had been lost, but they hadn't been able to figure out who had done it and that kind of stuff. So this wouldn't have been an unusual picture. So, so he takes a calf with him and he goes out. And he arrives in Bethlehem, and, and the elders are a little edgy. You know, when the high priest shows up, the prophet of God shows up unannounced and unrequested, it could be scary. In verse 5, Samuel says, listen, I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So get yourselves ready. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. But then he also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when he arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's anointed one is here before me. So they get to the sacrifice. Jesse's sons finally start to show up, and the oldest one, Eliab, shows up, and he looks like a king. I mean, this guy is strong, he's healthy, he looks, looks smart, acts smart, carries himself with confidence. He looks the part of a king. And Samuel says, my job's done. Well, but the Lord says to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or his stature, which makes me feel better about myself. So do not look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees. For man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart, spiritual perceptions. So Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord says, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. And then Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. And he go kid after kid after kid. He goes through seven sons. And Samuel's standing there. He says, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And he's looking over here. There's, there's nobody left in line on this side. You got any more kids? And Jesse responds, well, they're still the youngest. I mean, you, you wouldn't be interested in him. He's still the youngest, but right now he's out tending the sheep. Samuel says, send for him. We're not going to sit down on the sacrifice until he shows up. And when he arrives, he, he said he had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Some of your texts have the word ruddy appearance, and this would have been like he would have had just like a ruddy, reddish tint to his hair and his his face kind of had a, a tanned look to it. it. made him look really healthy and, and vibrant, you know. But, but besides that, he, he's small. You know, he, he doesn't he's young, you know. And, and, and he doesn't really look the part of a king. But, but the Lord says, anoint him, for he's the one. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord took control of David from that day forward. And then Samuel was set out and he went back home. Now, the Spirit of the Lord, which had just come on David, had left Saul, and an evil spirit. I, I, I think the, the, the Hebrews suggest more the idea of a, a, of, a, of a judging spirit from the Lord 
began to torment him. You know, um, clearly the, the picture we're trying to be given here is, is that Saul is experiencing the loss of peace in his life because of his disobedience, and he's troubled. He's done what's expedient rather than what's obedient, and he has lost God's peace, and he feels that lack, and so he's troubled. The, the weight of the nation is sitting on him, and God's not there to empower him anymore, and all that runs together. And so his servants suggest to him music therapy. They say, you know, you've you got a troubled spirit, whatever. You know, if we can just get somebody in here who can play the harp, they can soothe your spirit. And so they, he says, go find somebody. And before they go out the door, one of them says, I already know somebody. There's this kid from Bethlehem. He's Jesse's son. Valiant warrior. In other words, you know, he's a brave guy, whatever. His name's David. He can play the harp like that. So Saul says, go get him. And David comes. He comes with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat in hand. He never came to the king empty-handed. On top of that, probably the way the royal court worked was that the families of those who served there had to supply what they ate. So there was a constant pipeline coming in to take care of those. And so he sent some food with him. And So then Saul sends word to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. This is verse 23 now. Whenever the spirit from God troubled Saul, David would pick up the harp and play, and Saul would be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. It's a little different in my house. Whenever Christina plays the piano, I just turn the volume on the television up more, but... The same kind of idea here. Chapter 17, we meet Goliath and David's interaction with him. The, the, the Philistines had come up, and, and they're not as, they haven't penetrated as far into Israel, but they've kind of set up camp right on their border, right on the edge of the border with the Israelites, and, and they got camps on different sides of the valley, and every single day they come out, and each army kind of lines up on the top of the, 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 the hill with a ravine separating them, and they're ready for somebody to give the battle cry to go in. And So pick up with verse 3. It says, The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath, and he, he's got a western name. It comes more from Asia Minor, you know, Turkey and that area. And he says, From Gath came out from the Philistine camp. Now, he was nine feet, nine inches tall. We, we had a student who worshipped with us for about a year. He was from New Zealand. He went to WPI. He was seven foot four. To go through the double doors, he had to duck. I think his head could hit the new television on the back wall of the sanctuary. Nine foot nine, psh, go right into it, face first. You know, this guy is big. You know, he's huge. You know, and... The other day I was, I was listening to where the, we were driving home from someplace and we were listening to one of the bowl games on, on, tele, on the radio and Christina just loved that too. And, and, uh, and, and Baylor had one of their backup guards playing fullback and they threw a ball to him in the flat, which he ran in 18 yards for a touchdown. The guy weighed 420 pounds. He got the ball and the defense ran that way and he ran this way. You know, he's just a massive fella, you know. And so he was 9 feet, 9 inches tall. He wore a bronze helmet. And he had bronze scale armor. This was a, a cloth garment that had little pieces of metal sewed to it, layered over top, that weighed 125 pounds. Probably weighed as much as David did. There was bronze armor on his shin, so he's wearing like hockey shin pads. And, and he's got, 
a bronze sword that slunk between his shoulders. It was probably more sickle-shaped, so it wouldn't get stuck. It was something they could slash with. And, and the spear shaft was like a weaver's beam. And the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. How much does a shot put weigh? I don't even know. Anybody have some track in here? What? Eight or 16. So this is like a heavy shot put, right? Uh, you know, and he, he literally something you could throw through a brick wall. In addition to that, he's got a shield bearer who walks in front of him with a big shield, big rectangular square. So it's like he's walking behind a wall, and you got this mammoth guy who's towering over it with his big helmet, sword, spear, the whole nine yards, and, and it's intimidating. Look what happens in verse 8. This is what he does every single day. This happens for 40 days in a row. He comes out, he, he stood, and he shouts out to the Israelites. He says, why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He says, am I not a Philistine? And you guys are servants of Saul. Come, choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we'll be your servants. Well, that, he didn't really mean that because that's not what happens later. They, when, when he loses, they all run. You know, they don't, they don't surrender to become servants. They all run. He says, but if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and you'll serve us. So he says, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistines, they all volunteered to go take him on. No, it says they lost their courage and they were terrified. Now, what happened, much like the royal court, was that in, in order for the soldiers to be taken care of, their families sent provisions from home. So Saul's three oldest, uh, David's three oldest brothers are there. We don't know, the, the, you had to be 20 years of age before you could serve in the army, Israel's army. So David's probably not 20 years of age yet. So he's young. He might still be as young as 14 or 15 or 16, but he's young. Where were the other four brothers besides these three? Well, there was also seems to be some laws that you only had to provide three of your children to the king's service. So the three oldest brothers went off to war. David, who's the runt of the litter, his job is to take the food back and forth. So his father gives him instructions, say, hey, take this, this, and this, head to your brothers, give some to their commander so it'll be nice for them, leave the food for your brothers and find out how they're doing. So David does that. We pick up the story in verse 20. So David got up early in the morning, he left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up, and he sent out just as Jesse, his father, had instructed him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Now, again, this has been going on for 40 days in a row. They get up in the morning, they brush their teeth, get ready, put on all their armor. They go out to the top of the hill and yell, yeah! you know, and then Goliath would come out and they'd all kind of stick their tails between their legs and kind of look shyly like he's going, that kind of idea. Just, so David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and he runs to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. And when all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Now, previously, an Israelite man had declared, says, you know, hey, if anybody, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the one who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter as his wife. The king will also make the household of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. You know, basically, that last phrase is not so much like, gosh, you don't have to pay taxes anymore, you know, that kind of idea. It's much more about the fact the only family in the nation that didn't have to pay taxes was the royal family. 
So it would be elevating this family to the level of royalty. Okay? So that's really the thing. So David spoke to the men who were standing with him. Well, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyways that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, so the people are all talking to David, that kind of stuff. And David's older brother, Eliab, he gets frustrated. You know, a little civil rivalry, right? He's older, he's there, he's in the army, and David shows up, and he's like a curious little kid, you know, kind of idea. And he says, why'd you come down here? He says, why'd you leave those few sheep that you take care of with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil. You, you just want to come down because you want to see the show. You want to see the battle. So David said, well, what, what did I do to you, you know? He says, I'm just asking a question. I'm just asking an important question. Then he turned from those besides, beside him to others in front of him and asked about the same thing. So finally the word gets back to Saul, what David's doing. And Saul asks him to come and be with him. And David says, so don't let, verse 32, David says to Saul, don't, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. <laughs> and Saul must have laughed in his face. He says, you can't fight this Philistine. You're just a kid. And he's been a warrior since he was a kid. And David answered Saul, says, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. Notice the plural. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul says, go, go, and may the Lord be with you. I mean, Saul, what did he have to lose, right? He wasn't gonna, they weren't going to surrender because David lost to Goliath. So he says, you know what? Go give it a try. Nobody else is willing to. I'm not willing to, so you might as well go. So they give David all Saul's militaries. He gets his helmet, he gets his armor, and all that sword, and all that kind of stuff. And, and David can't even walk in it. So David said, I can't fight in these things. Said, in verse 4, he says, Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones in the wadi, which is the, when it would rain, the, the water would run off the hills, and, and the flat areas in the valleys would quickly fill with water. And they referred to those as water, wadis, where the runoff would go, and then it would. would um, turn back to dry land. And he put the five stones in his pouch in the shepherd's bag. And then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine came closer and closer to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And he starts to curse David and says, oh, look at this. You know, is this the best that Israel has to offer? This little scrunchy, you know, you, are you a dog? Am I a dog? Do you come with me as sticks and that kind of stuff? He says, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kill you and I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds. And so this is a little trash talking, intimidation for the battle, right? Jeff, this guy looks like he can back it up, right? And David says, you come out against me with a dagger and a spear and a sword and all that other kind of stuff, but listen, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's armies, and you've defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down. I'm going to cut your head off and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God and this whole assembly will know that it's not by my sword, it's not by my spear that the Lord saved, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. And that's exactly what happens. They get, the, 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 the Philistines keeps moving forward, 
David's not intimidated. He runs at the Philistine. When he gets him within slingshot range, he picks, gets one of his rocks out of his thing, winds up his slingshot, hits him right in the forehead, the one part in his body that wasn't protected. Knocks him unconscious. Who knows? Maybe killed him. David runs up, quite the armor bearer, right? He doesn't stand to protect his fallen soul. He runs off, right? And not like Jonathan's armor bearer that we saw a couple chapters ago, right? He, he, he runs off. David runs up, pulls out the guy's sword, cuts his head off, just like he had promised. And a huge victory takes place. The Philistines get, they don't know what to do. They start running, and et cetera. The Israelites mobilize. They, they start, and you have this huge victory that happens because David saw things the right way. Listen, our, our time is moving away pretty quickly on us. So let me give you just a several things to think about, okay? We're at the beginning of 2015, right? And, and I, I don't know any of you say, well, hey, I want to have a lousy spiritual year. You know, I, I just want it to stink. You know, I don't think any of us are here today. All of us, we want to have a healthy, encouraging, positive spiritual reality. We want to see God at work. Here's some things you need to think about. Are you seeing things with just man's eyes with your own eyes or you're really seeing things from God's perspective through God's eyes. What happens when Samuel sent out to anoint the new king? He's told that he needs to go on this quest. He's told where to go. He knows what household to go to. He doesn't know who the, he doesn't know who, which of the sons is supposed to be anointed. And so because he's not exactly sure of what to do, what does he do? He, he just runs home to mama, right? I'm just going to choose with my eyes. And Eliab walks in, and he looks like a king. This guy is strong, he's healthy, he's tall, he's good-looking, carries himself with confidence, you know, he's healthy, good, feels good, all this kind of stuff. He said, this has got to be the one. God says, I don't work that way. I don't look at just the outside, I look at the heart. I look at the place, and this is biblically defined, I look at the place where people decide to exercise bold faith in God. And the thing that I would tell you today is that in order to have the right spiritual perception that leads to the spiritual reality is you have to see things God's way, not just, not just what you see with your own eyes. And, and that can be very difficult. I mean, there's even an example from, from Saul's life, right? When Saul issues an order as a king, he expects it to be obeyed right away. So when he says, I want David, bring him to me, David comes and he stays. But when God gave him an order, it was, well, I'm not sure it really makes sense anymore in this context. I'm going to do something different. Man's eyes, God's eyes. Very different. You know, and, and this can be very, it can be difficult for us. You know, we, we often look at the situation and say, well, does this make any sense? Will this work? It can be related to our giving. It can be related to serving. It can be through all kinds of stuff. Does it make sense? Does it, does it look like it'll work? I got to tell you, we need to see things with God's eyes, how God's perceiving the heart, and is our action demonstrating bold faith in the God who's called us to act? You know, and sometimes in circumstances, it just doesn't make any sense, but, but God's still in the midst of it. I told the first service, and, you know, when Christine and I came back from seminary, we were planted a church in the South Shore, Fellowship, Baptist Church in Hanover. And that was like in 1987. It's about 1990, 1991. And, and you know, I, I was making like $18,000 a year. Now, that was my salary, my housing, my medical, my retirement, and any ministry expenses I had. 
We were married. We had a, Joshua had already been born. Didn't make any sense at all. I mean, financially, it was really tough to make the pieces fit, right? And, and our denominational leader said, hey, we've got a healthy church down in Connecticut. We've got a parsonage. can afford a full-time pastor. One of our flagship churches, they really need somebody. Can I submit your name to them? And from my perspective, I said, this makes perfect sense. I'm still in ministry, but I'll be able to be the provider for my family that I need to be. And even, and, and even though this came from our denominational leader who had been being there, interim there, they never even contacted me off my resume. Not, not even a nice letter to say, hey, we got your resume. You, you don't fit. Sorry. Good life. Nothing. nothing just nothing. And I'm thinking, how does this make sense? But what you see God do in the next five year, four or five years that we were there is just incredible. We've got to see things with God's eyes, not with just what makes sense to us. Secondly, do we see things strictly from a physical perspective? Maybe you might want to use the word a circumstantial or a situational perspective, or do you see it from a spiritual perspective? Let me give you just to hold up an analogy and let you apply it down the road. What, what were the guys standing on the top? The guys in the army who were standing on the top of the ridge looking down into the ravine at Goliath, how were they judging the situation? Physically, right? Here, here's a moving, living tank, and then there's me. I ain't going. And they're strictly seeing it from a physical perspective, right? What can I achieve against this mountain of a man? I can't win. I ain't going. How does David see the situation? This is an idolater who's mocking God. And God will use me to honor himself, to conquer it. He sees it spiritually. It's not his battle. It's not going to be my sword. It's not going to be my spear. It's going to be the God who works. The battle is the Lord's, right? And, and I got to tell you, we, we get into this arena all the time. What, what is it that I can do rather than what we can let God do through us? And our spiritual reality gets warped because we can only see our spiritual lives from what we can achieve by ourselves rather than how God can bring the victory in the midst of the battle for us. Is that making any sense? I mean, you could make lots of applications here and there and run with it, whatever, but, but we often struggle with what makes sense, what can I actually do here, whatever, as opposed to what's really right in God's eyes and what is it that God desires to do in this circumstance. We, we, we see things strictly from a circumstantial or a situational issue rather than from a spiritual one. I, I got one last thought for you. When we engage, do we attempt to do it the world's way or do we attempt to do it God's way? You know, there, there's more to the story here about David putting on this armor of Saul's than first meets the eye. First of all, it, it really is a picture of the fact that David is going to become the next king. And so it's like Saul's giving him all of the instruments of the next kingship in his hands. But in the midst of all of that, I mean, so David's a scrawny little kid, and so they put this breastplate on him and the helmet and whatever, and David's just kind of, you know, he can't even stand up in this stuff, right? You know, it's like, it's like your little three-year-old daughter putting on your wife's high heel shoes and trying to walk around, you know, it just, just doesn't work, right? You know, and, and, and David said, I, I can't fight this. And, but, it's, but symbolically saying, I'm not going to do the kingship 
And I'm not going to do this battle the way Saul would do it. Which is with all these man-made instruments of the sword, of the breastplate, whatever. It's all the stuff that Goliath is equipped with, right? I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do this God's way. I'm going to do it with the stick that God made. I'm going to do it with the rocks that God made. And I'm going to identify with the shepherds that God has used to forge a nation. And I'm going to go into battle that way. I'm going to do this God's way. I'm not going to do this man's way. And, and, and there's a progression right to it. What do we actually see? Do we see what only we can see or do we see what God actually sees? And, and, and do we look at it strictly from a circumstantial, situational kind of thing or do we see with God's eyes and understand what it is that God wants to do and will do in the circumstance? And from that, how does that shape how we actually do it out? David doesn't wander out there with the spear and the swords. And all that. He goes out there with what God had equipped him with and had delivered him with before. He did it God's way. And God brought the victory. You know, sometimes we're, you and I are trying to fight spiritual battles with our own determination and creativity and ingenuity and all those kinds of things. And, and God's simply saying, just put on the full armor of God. Just pray. Just be in the gospel. Be in the truth. Read the word of God. Be in fellowship. Just, you know, he, he's just, do it my way. Do it my way. So here's my prayer for us today. And, I, and I, I'm just going to quote directly out of what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. This is chapter 1, verse 18. I've given you just the beginning phrase of chapter, uh, of, it, of this verse from Home and Christian and then picked up from the NIV after that. He says, Paul, Paul's writing to this church, and, he, and I think it really relates to what we're talking about. As I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened. I pray that you will see things with God's eyes, with what God's about, with what God, how God wants to do it. Or you take it from the NIV, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Or in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. That you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Let's pray together. Father, we don't want to be people who have eyes but don't see. We don't want to be people who have ears but never really hear. Father, let 2015 be the year where the eyes of our heart, that place where we can see you, see what you're about, see how you want to do it. God, we pray that this would be the years where the eyes of our heart 